Well, this is our fourth uh, lesson in our series, The Divided Kingdom. And I just want to set the context right so that we are caught up to speed. We see a lot of new faces. Um, we are in the book of 1 Kings, and we are looking at texts that follow Solomon's death. And so remember, Jeroboam uh, was a servant of King Solomon, but the Lord was not very happy with the idolatry that was taking place under Solomon. And so he sends a prophet who appoints Jeroboam as king. That happens in chapter 11, verse 31. Solomon dies at the end of that chapter, in chapter 11, and his son Rehoboam becomes king. Uh, Rehoboam, as we heard in the last few lessons, acts foolishly, and that leads to what we have as the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. The capital for the northern kingdom is Samaria, and then the capital for the southern kingdom is Jerusalem. As soon as uh, Jeroboam becomes king, he realizes there are at least three festivals in the life of the nation of Israel where they all have to go to, to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. And those festivals are Passover, the Pentecost and the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now here's what Jeroboam thinks as the king of the northern part of this uh, region. He says, if Israelites go to Jerusalem to worship, then they would be tempted to become part of the southern kingdom. And so what does he do? He builds two altars of golden calves, one in Dan. As you look at the map, it's the northernmost point in Israel. And he builds one in Bethel, which means the house of God, and it's the southernmost point in Israel. This thing that he has done, though, was idolatry. It was a grave sin. Not only uh, did he encourage idolatry, he also appointed priests, men who were not Levites. This was evil and a clear disrespect and a dishonor to the God of the Israelites. Last week when Edwin taught, he covered the, last, the first 10 verses of chapter 13. And in these 10 verses, we are introduced to an individual simply uh, known as the man of God. What a wonderful title. Man of God. Woman of God. Uh, we are told that this man of God was from Judah and he came to Bethel. He arrives just in time as Jeroboam is getting ready to burn incense on the altar in Bethel. Now with a clear indication that God is no respecter of man, the prophet actually does not speak directly to Jeroboam, but he speaks to the inanimate altar in front of him. And he prophesies to the altar that there will come a man, a king, by the name Josiah, and he will sacrifice not animals, but priests on that altar. And just in case the listeners thought that this is too far in the future to happen and it will never happen, the prophet ends up giving them a sign right then and there. What is that sign? He tells them that out of this altar, ashes will flow out. That's usually how prophecies and prophets work in the Bible. Uh, to know if the prophet is authentic, he will usually prophesy something that will happen in the near future uh, that is of a lesser scale. And in order to point out something that will happen 
in the distant future that will take place on a larger scale. Uh, this way of doing things uh, puts God's grace on full display. Uh, it is as if God is saying, heed the warning, uh, get your act together, because if this has come to pass, then that which is in the future will surely come to pass. So when Jeroboam hears that, hears that he, he becomes angry uh, towards this prophet, and he commands his soldiers to seize that prophet. And he, he puts his hand out, but as soon as he stretches his hand, it just withers, it dries up. That's when the altar splits and the ashes pour out from the altar. Uh, Jeroboam recognizes that this is no ordinary man, and he begs him, verse 6, to pray to the Lord that his hand may be restored. Uh, the man of God graciously obliges, and his hand is restored. And that is when Jeroboam cunningly tries to entice the man of God by inviting him home, verse 7, and promising uh, to give some rewards to him. Uh, clearly wanting the man of God to take back his prophecy. Uh, the man of God, though, is committed to his mission. Verse 8, he responds, Even if you give me half of your kingdom, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to eat your bread or drink water of this place. Uh, those are my instructions from the Lord. Not only that, I'm not going to go the same way that I came. And the reason for that is so that I would not be enticed by someone else. I think it was Steve Lawson who says, uh, who said that there are many preachers who were killed for preaching in the past, but not many now. There's no one who wants to kill the preachers. Why? Because they're not committed as much to the mission as we see this man of God. So that's where we pick up our text uh, today. As we read the story, we're going to cover 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 11 to 34. As we read the story, you'll be left wondering uh, and many questions will plague you like it did me when I was studying this passage. While there are many questions that the passage generates and leaves unanswered, what is important to observe is that the author is very clear on what he wants to write about, the theme of this particular passage, the main message he wants to convey. So let me draw that out for us before we look at the text itself. That's why I've actually printed the entire uh, uh, set of verses for you at the back of your uh, uh, outline. You know, narratives in the Hebrew language emphasize uh, something on the basis of repeating those things. It would be a repetition of a word. Think about holy, holy, holy. You know, holy just once is not enough for a God who controls everything and who is holy and sovereign, and so the word is repeated. Uh, there's something called as parallelism in Hebrew poetry where an uh, idea or a thought is repeated to emphasize what the author wants to emphasize. And so in this particular text in front of us, nine times either the text or the character in the text refers to the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh. Uh, look at verse 1, uh, verse 2, uh, verse 5. Verse 9, uh, 17, 18, 20, 26, 32. The word of the Lord. Add to these nine references uh, to what there are places where it mentions Yahweh spoke, verse 3 and 26, uh, to what he commanded uh, in verse 9 and 21. Thus says Yahweh, verse 2 and 20. 
21, or, or the mouth of Yahweh, or the mouth of the Lord, verse 21 and 26. You know, by the number of times, the phrase, the word of the Lord, or the word of Yahweh is either stated or implied, the passage is clearly about the word of God. As we read, we will observe what the characters in the story are doing with the word of the Lord, with the word of God. And so I have titled our lesson for today, What Will You Do With God's Word? What will you do with God's word? Let's begin reading as we look at the first thing that is mentioned, and it is the compromise. Notice verse 11. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken to the king, these also they related to their father. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which he, the man of God who came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. And so he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, You shall, not, you shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. He said to him, I also am a prophet like you. Uh, this is the old prophet. I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Uh, but he lied to him. And so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. If you're like me, you're asking a lot of questions at this stage. Uh, why was the man of God to refuse any hospitality at all? Uh, why does the man of God have to return from a different route or route, depending on where you come from? Uh, what are these sons of false prophet doing in Jeroboam's service at Bethel? Uh, why was the man of God sitting under the oak tree uh, was such a rest, considering the distance between Judah and Bethel, was such a rest even necessary? Uh, Judah, after all, was only a few miles from Bethel. Who is this old prophet? Uh, why did he lie to the man of God? Did he feel guilty uh, that he himself did not have the courage to confront the king? And here comes a man across the border and confronts the king of this nation. Uh, why does the man of God, who has clear orders from God, Go with this old prophet without finding out more about who he was and what were his motives. How is it that a true word of God comes to a prophet who's involved in lying? And so as you look at this passage, there's a lot of questions. Uh, Dale, uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, Welcome to the strange world of Hebrew narrative. Notice all the answers the writer refuses to give us. It is a revealing reticence. It must mean that such data do not matter and that what really matters lies elsewhere. And so what is it? So at least we can say the text doesn't do anything to satisfy our curiosity. But Bible wasn't given to satisfy our curiosity. It was given to challenge and to change us. 
Notice the writer keeps our focus on something that is far more important. And what is that? Uh, it is what did the characters in the story do with the word of God? What did they do with God's word? Uh, here's an old prophet. He was introduced to us, verse 11. Uh, he's living in Bethel. He's not at Jeroboam's service at the altar, but his sons are, and they are the ones who come and report to him about this man of God. Uh, can you imagine the scene uh, as these young sons ran back to their father? Dad, you must hear this. Uh, we saw a man of God today. Uh, he was a prophet dad, not the ones like we see in Bethel. Uh, this man, he had courage and he spoke with confidence to the king. He stood there and he was speaking as if God was speaking through him. And when the king tried to rebuke him, his hand, I mean, he, it literally dried up as he extended his hand right before our eyes. So bad was the situation that the king, the king had to beg this man to heal him. That you must meet this man. Which way did he go? They had seen the way, and so they point that to that way. And so he sets off on his donkey. He meets him. Are you the man of God from Judah? Yes, I am. Uh, come home and eat some bread with me. No, that would be a violation of the direct word of God. No, I cannot do it. Oh, I'm just a prophet like you, he says. And an angel spoke to me, and he shared the word of the Lord with me. Uh, bring him back to your house that he may eat the bread and drink water. Uh, that sentence there at the end in verse 18. In English, it's five words, but he lied to him. In Hebrew, it's only two words. It's a very abrupt ending to convey the shock of what is happening here. We can tend to miss this tension in that story if we read our Bibles silently or in our minds, as some do. Remember, the Middle Eastern culture was an oral culture. And as the audience to whom this is being read hears this, there is a stunned silence. What is really going on here? Was there a lapse in concentration from the man of God? A momentary shifting of focus in his mind? Uh, perhaps the body is tired, you know, he's not eaten, and the mental guards are, are down? We don't know. We don't know. But what is clear is that there has been a compromise on God's word. The man of God her, had a direct command from the Lord, and for the direct command of God, he is willing to substitute it with a second-hand word from the Lord. Uh, it's not even a second-hand word from the Lord. It's supposedly an angel who heard, who heard the Lord speak, and that is what this old prophet is conveying. Now, we have to remember that this, this man, this man of God, was the same man who stood before the king, which is no trivial thing, and told him when he invited him, even if you give me half of your kingdom, I'm not going to come and eat with you. He stood up to the king, and yet when somebody merely presented themselves as a prophet and said, the angel spoke to me, uh, this man of God fell for it. What are some quick lessons that we can draw? Uh, God's word is highly practical. Well, first of all, spiritually speaking, in the spiritual world, Success in the past is no guarantee for success in the future. A success in the past is no guarantee for success in the future. Every day you get up, 
You arm yourself. You equip yourself with the Word of God as you face a world uh, that is increasingly hostile to believers and is not short of employing deceptive weapons in attacking them. So success in the past is no guarantee for success in the future. But secondly, a success on big stages in life is no guarantee of success in small stages of life. You know, this man of God faced Jeroboam boldly, but it was a relatively unknown man who deceived him into compromising on God's word. You know, a majority of our battles as believers are not on primetime network answering tough questions from journalists about our faith. No, a majority of our battles is, are in the daily routine of life. It's that person who cut you off on the road, on the highway, right? It's that annoying neighbor, yeah, that brother, that sister who always tests your sanctification process. For younger parents, it is that child who always wants your time. Now, that's where the battle is fought as believers. And what do we do? Well, first of all, don't depend on the success of the past or the success of the big stage. Every day, we are to drink afresh of the living waters of God's word. Run to his word for strength, <coughs> encouragement, comfort, challenge, and change. Uh, thirdly and finally, we are to be on our guard. After all, we are the Bereans, right? Be on guard when it comes to God's word. Isn't it to Paul, uh, about Paul, it says in Acts 17, a verse that Corbett actually mentioned in the first lesson, uh, these were the more noble-minded. They received the word of God eagerly. They examined the word of God daily, and they evaluated the word of God carefully. So much so that not even the Apostle Paul was exempt from their examination. Uh, we have to know God's word so well and apply it so diligently to our life that we are to immediately be able to spot what aligns with God's word and what does not align with God's word. Apostle Paul on the gospel in writing in Galatians 1.8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. I don't depend on others. Yes, we are to learn from others. Uh, that pastor there who's in another city, uh, that uh, famous preacher or whoever, yes, there are things that we can learn, but you always ought to be like the Bereans that are mentioned in Acts 17, who do the study of God's word on their own. The man of God then compromised on the word of God. Secondly, the confrontation. Notice verse 20. Now it came about, as they were sitting down at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. And now we have the actual word of God being spoken through the prophet. It says the word of the Lord came to the prophet. Earlier, if you remember, it was the man of God who cried against Jeroboam. 
verse 2, now we have the old prophet who cries against the man of God as he confronts him. And what does he say? He says, you have disobeyed the command of the Lord. You have not observed the command of the Lord. What have you done? Well, you were commanded not to eat bread. You were commanded not to drink water. But you did both of those things. But what is such a big deal about that? I mean, it's just bread and water anyway. Why should the man of God be confronted about it? Here's why. Because eating the bread and drinking water conveys that you are on good terms with your host. It conveys that you are in fellowship with them by eating bread and drinking water. What you're conveying is that all is well. Uh, it's not such a big deal that you have established these altars in Bethel and Dan, you know. Uh, it's not such a big deal that you're now worshipping golden calves instead of worshipping the true God. Uh, it's not such a big deal that you're not worshipping the true God at all. You know, just get along. Be nice to each other. Be kind. You know, don't worry about the truth. That's what is conveyed when you eat bread and drink water in the culture that the Bible was written in. And because you've done this, your body shall not come to the grave of your father. In other words, you will not have the honor of being buried in the same place as your godly ancestors. Notice something in the text. We're not given a lot of answers to the question we might have. Now, what are some questions that we can have? Why is the old prophet only now receiving the word from God and not earlier? Uh, why did he not express sorrow over the fact that he actually lied to the man of God earlier? Uh, why did the man of God not protest when he found out that he was tricked by this old prophet? Again, the text does not provide us any answers. Instead, the writer keeps our focus on something that is far more important. And what did the characters in the story do with God's word? What did they do with God's word? What lessons can we draw from these verses? First of all, we are to speak and live the word of God without wavering. Speak and live the word of God without wavering. When the word is from the Lord, live it and speak it without wavering. Notice the confidence with which this old prophet speaks. He, he, uh, he cries out. He, uh, you can sense a raising of his voice. Uh, there is a certainty in his speech. He's not wavering. There's no indecisiveness in his speech. There's no hesitation. He's determined to get God's word across to this man of God. He speaks with boldness. He's fearless and he is firm. To speak and live the word of God without wavering. But secondly, receive the word of God with meekness. Now, there's no record of what the man of God said in response to this old prophet. His last recorded words are in verse 17. Yet indeed, compromise on the word of God, and therefore the confrontation that takes place is quite legitimate. And so based on that and based on what follows, we can say that he humbly agreed to the charge that he had indeed compromised on the word of God. What does James tell us? A passage that our brother quoted earlier. This you know, my beloved brethren, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, 
receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls and prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Speak and live the word of God without wavering and when confronted over a sin, receive it with meekness and humility. Thirdly, the consequences. Verse 23. And it came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, for the prophet whom he had brought back. Now when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him, and his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it, the lion also standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by, saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Now when the prophet who brought him back, that is the old prophet, from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. Then he spoke to his sons, saying, saddle the donkey for me, and they saddled it. He went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body, nor torn the donkey. So the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. And he came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. He laid his body on his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. After he had buried him, he spoke to his son, saying, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. What the old prophet prophesied, or had prophesied, has now come true in the life of the prophet. The prophet does not know how the man of God will meet his end, uh, but all he knows that he will not. All he knows is that he will not have the honor of being buried with his godly ancestors. And so, after the dinner is over, as we read, he gives him his donkey, sends him his way, and a very strange thing happens. There's a lion who meets him on the way, and kills him and leaves his body on the road. There is a donkey, but he doesn't do anything to the donkey. Furthermore, apart from killing the man of God, he does not do anything to the body. He does not consume it. He does not eat it. He just stands beside the body. Well, that's a very odd scene, a very unusual picture. But it's right in the middle of the road, so anyone who's passing by is is, is clearly, be, uh, clearly able to see what's going on. They're curious. There is a dead body. There is a lion. There is a donkey. The lion doesn't do anything to the donkey. Does not harm even the passers-by. And so what these people do is they go and report in the city, as we read, to the old prophet. They probably think the old prophet uh, will have something to guide them with. And so the old prophet immediately connects the dots as he recognizes this is uh, the same person, the man of God, that he had confronted. He gets his son to saddle his donkey, finds the body just as it is described, brings the body back to Bethel to mourn, to cry, and to lament, and to bury him. 
In fact, he lays his body in the, his own grave, which is to say the place that he would have been buried in, and he again mourns for him. What we see here in these verses is a genuine grief that is displayed as he asks his son to bury him in the same grave as the man of God. I was probably grieving because he recognizes the consequences of his own actions. Remember how they, uh, he probably remembers how his actions brought this man of God down. Yes, the man of God was foolish and naive in listening to this prophet, but it doesn't excuse the old prophet's actions. As one commentator writes, because the man of God from Judah was foolish does not mean that the old prophet was guiltless. And so perhaps he's thinking at this time, was it my actions that brought this particular event in this man's life? But there's another issue over which he's grieved, and it is this, as we read, based on all the events that take place from verse 1 to verse 25, he's certain that this indeed was a man of God. And what he has prophesied about the altar in Bethel will indeed come true. But on what basis can he say that? Well, first of all, there is an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy uh, that we saw the altar splitting and the ashes being poured out. Uh, there is a boldness in his approach to the king, the death which came to him because he compromised on the word of God. Uh, there is a unique circumstances that are associated with his death where the lion only killed him but did not eat him and the donkey was not afraid of the lion. Uh, basically, supernatural is written all over the picture that you see on the screen there. All these events confirmed to him that the prophecy that he had prophesied about in the future is sure to come to pass. Now again, like the previous sections, we are left to wonder, what is really going on here? Why doesn't the lion devour the man of God and then the donkey? Why doesn't the donkey run away once he sees the lion? Again, we want to set, set aside what is conveyed to us and focus uh, um, set aside what is not conveyed to us in order to focus on what is conveyed to us. And what is that? Here too we ask and answer the question, what did the characters in the story do with the word of God? And we do, do that by drawing a couple of lessons. First of all, God is always faithful in fulfilling his word. God is always faithful in fulfilling his word. Through the old prophet, God had conveyed to the man uh, that he would die and he would not be buried with his ancestors. But the death comes immediately, and that's exactly what happens in this man's life. If God says he will do it, he's faithful to do it, and he always does what he plans. You know, majority of our believer's life is not learning new things every day or learning big things every day, but it's faithfully doing the little things every day. And perhaps this truth is known to you. We have a God who says that he will do something and he's faithful to do it. What a wonderful thing to be reminded of every day in the daily routines of life. To Ezekiel, he says, None of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever word I speak will be performed, declares the Lord. He is a faithful God and he faithfully fulfills his word. If he has told you something in his word, he will do it. One of the things he has told believers is that he will work on their life. They will work along with him. He says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you 
will perfect it until the day of Christ. You and I will exactly live the number of days that God has ordained for you and for me. Not one day less, not one day more. He will do what he has promised. Secondly, even animals obey the word of God. Uh, to the question, what did the characters do with the word of God? We can say even the animals obey the word of God. We're not given a background to what was conveyed to the animals. It's not necessary. But based on how the animals behaved, we can put on our sanctified imagination, if you can imagine with me, perhaps the lion was told, go and kill the man of God and do nothing else. That's what the lion did. The donkey was told, don't be afraid of the lion. He's not going to kill you. Stay where you are. That's what the donkey did. What a stinging indictment this is on the characters that have come before in the story. You have King Jeroboam who sinned by committing idolatry and he failed to obey the word of God. You had the old prophet who clearly lied and he disobeyed the word of God. You had the man of God who was told not to eat or drink, but he compromised on the word of God. He too disobeyed God's word. The only creatures who have obeyed God are these two animals. To our Lord, he was asked, blessed, he was told, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And his response, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. To be blessed is to not only know God's word, but it is to obey God's word. Fourthly and finally, we have the con continuation. You know, we end with how we started this chapter, uh, with the same man, Jeroboam. And that's how Hebrew writing actually works. It's kind of bookends. You begin the chapter or a section with a particular individual or a theme, you end with that same individual. Who is this individual? It's Jeroboam. The reader is thinking, you're thinking, I'm th I was thinking, surely of all what is recorded about what God is going to bring in the life of Israel, Jeroboam is going to change. There's going to be a change in his life. But notice verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way. But again, he made priests of the high places from among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. Ugh. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. Now, for all the events that are mentioned in, from verse 11 to 32, Jeroboam, instead of turning to God, he returns to his evil way. He continues to go on the road that he has already taken. When he was confronted at the beginning of the chapter, he acted arrogantly and harshly, ended up having his hand withered. You think he would have learned his lesson, but he doesn't. Even when God was gracious to him and restored his hand. Now that should have been an experience enough in his life to change his course, but he continues to act in an evil way. He continued to act like God in appointing priests. Uh, that was something only God did. He continued to appoint priests from any and every tribe. When God's word clearly 
had said and instructed for priests to be appointed only from the tribe of Levi. What he did was evil in the sight of God, and therefore, according to the word of God, his name was to be blotted out. His house was to be uh, destroyed, which is to say his son wouldn't be carrying the monarchy forward. You know, Jeroboam failed as he dis disobeyed the word of God. And in his failure, Jeroboam actually became the standard of disobedient kings of Israel. You know, this particular phrase, if you continue to read with, uh, in the book of First Kings and Second Kings, this phrase is repeated. How many times? Notice all of these kings are kind of compared to the standard of, with this phrase. What is that phrase? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is, the king did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. Almost all of those kings except one, Ahab. And with Ahab it is said that he was more evil than Jeroboam. What are some lessons we can draw from this? There is one, failure to obey God's word leads to severe consequences. In the case of Jeroboam, of course, he lost everything. What a bright future he had if he had only obeyed God's word. If you're here and in a large group such as this, I can think there might be some who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God's word tells us uh, that he has sent his son for you and for me. And when you place your trust in Christ and you repent of your sins, you will be justified. You will be declared righteous. Now that is God's promise. And if you fail to obey God's word, you will face consequences for that failure. If you're a believer here, you've placed your trust in Christ, which is probably true for most of us here. If you fail to obey God's word, you have to ask yourself, uh, what, what is it that I value more? Is it God or is it my sin? And really, failure to obey God's word is like robbing yourself. It's like picking your own pockets. Who does that? Most of us, all of us. And what do we do when we do that? Well, we go to God and we seek his forgiveness. We ask him to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was not true with Jeroboam. He never did that. Let me leave us with a few applications as we close our time. Uh, first of all, uh, be obeying God's word without compromise. Uh, be obeying God's word without compromise. It, it assumes that you're spending time in God's word. Um, we used to have a uh, elder, he passed away in 2018. Uh, we got to talk to his wife. Uh, he used to teach here, actually, in Bereans. For those of you who have been here for long, his name was Daryl Bennett. And um, Carol told us that one of the rules that they had for their children was um, uh, no, no breakfast, no Bible. It's a simple rule to think about. I don't want to be too legalistic about it. Perhaps you need to have breakfast in the morning, first thing, and that's, that's fine. But just remembering that uh, uh, helps you to think and reflect on the fact that I'm not going to go and do anything else without first spending time in God's Word. 
be obeying God's word without compromise. Secondly, be equipped with God's word to thwart deception. So much goes on, not only within our households, but outside in the world that we live in. How are you going to stay away from deception? How are you going to stay away from someone who says to you, God told me such and such a thing? Well, the only thing that you have, the only armor that you have is God's word. Be equipped with God's word to thwart deception. Thirdly and finally, it's a great reminder, be reminded that God is always faithful to his word. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. And I think someone will have instructions, Carpet, you will, okay. Father, thank you for this story that is mentioned in First Kings. What a great reminder to us as your children uh, that we are to be people of your word. What a lesson from the individuals in this story who compromised on your word, who lied about your word, who uh, disobeyed your word. Lord, you know that our heart's desire is to see you be honored and glorified through our life. Uh, yet, Lord, we do fail. And for that, we seek your forgiveness. We pray that you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and restore us to the fellowship that, that we have with you. Thank you for the reminder that we are to be about your word. Uh, for those who are struggling to understand how best to put into practice, I pray that they would seek you, that they would seek teachers and leaders, perhaps even in this room, to understand how they could do it best. That may, may it be said of these people here, the Bereans, uh, that we were all about your word, not only listening and hearing to it, but also doing it. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.